a podcast brought to you by Energy Live News. I'd like you to all introduce yourselves and just take a couple of minutes on your views on that phrase, climate change and doing our bit. <coughs> sure. Um, I'm Steve Holliday. I'm the president of the Energy Institute today, ex-chief executive of National Grid, chairman of a couple of small companies, including a battery storage business. Um, few remarks. Uh, and Kirsten and I were just talking, actually. I think my glass is half full here in the UK. It's half full because I think we've made amazing progress. There were lots of people in the industry who a decade ago would never have imagined that we could go for three months with 50% of our power coming from zero carbon. The problem with that is we've done all the easy stuff to a certain extent. It was the right place to start with the power sector. I think <coughs> the industry deserves huge credit. In fact, in fact Governments deserve huge credit. They put a lot of incentives in place that got people really focused and changed. The next piece is just significantly harder. And as I think about the, all the challenges that we're facing, I, I get a word that always goes across my mind, which is inclusivity. I've certainly heard for the last 10 years the constant debate between technologies. We need to stop the debate between technologies. We need every clean technology there is. Every single one. That's renewable energy and nuclear energy, which Kirsty, I'm sure, will talk about as well. The second area for inclusivity is to do with companies in the energy sector. As I sit back now and look at companies that are in the sector, I'm amazed. They're, they're companies that would never have imagined would be part of the energy sector. They're software businesses, half of them. They're human behavioural businesses. So there's lots of startups that are really exciting. But we need to also include the big old players as well. We are not going to get the energy we need for the future without the oil and gas industry, for example. They've got the financial strength, they've got the engineering strength, the scientific strength, etc., and the global reach. They've absolutely got to play a major part. So we can't exclude them. We've got to include them, but we've certainly got to expect them to get up and serve the plate way faster than they are today. And the third area you touched on, actually, the solutions require a huge amount of change of behaviour mm. from all of us. And it worries me enormously that we're going to have to think about how our customers change their behaviour when actually the leaders of our organisations represent such a small part of society, not least on gender. You know, 40% of the energy companies in the UK have no females on their boards whatsoever. So how the heck do we think we can really get into behavioural change <coughs> when we have such a narrow point of view? We need to have a point of view. And again, we need to include all the brains we can possibly hit this thing. So three issues all around inclusivity. Lastly, just very briefly on the Energy Institute, it's an international mm. institute. We'll talk about the UK, I'm sure, an awful lot today. We need to also think about how we reach externally. There are parts of the world that have no energy at all today. So what's the role that we've got in helping them get energy, but get energy that's clean? Thank you. Mike. Yeah, so I'm, uh, hi, good morning everybody, I'm Mike Hughes, I head up uh, Schneider Electric here in the UK and Ireland, and uh, Schneider Electric is basically a technology company, we're a global company <coughs> all across the world, uh, and, and we are one of the companies again that are involved in that technological revolution that is happening behind this whole climate change topic. Um, absolutely agree that it's, it's a glass half full topic. Um, we always say the technologies are already there, the technologies are getting better, and I completely agree it's not one or the other, it's whatever you've got, uh, there's, there's a place that that can be deployed. Um, so we, we, we look at the whole challenge around climate as being it's the topic of our times. 
We are a company that has been involved in that now for many, many years. We've also made a lot of public commitments as a company in terms of our own carbon footprint. We said we were going to be carbon neutral by 2030. We pulled it forward five years when we were down in Barcelona at the mm. summit. <coughs> So we're now saying 2025. So we, we, we're trying to also play our bit in that uh, in two ways, ourselves as a company, but also about the technologies that we are able to develop and bring to the market that can help change the way that markets work, that can help to make things commercially viable. Uh, because there is a role for corporations and companies and technology providers in that to help with that transition. And we're very excited about where we think this is going. Uh, very quick comment on, on what the UK has done, I think, with the net zero by 2050. Um, <clears throat> great leadership, great ambition in terms of setting a direction. And what that provides to companies like us and to the market is a clear focus area where we can invest our money and understand, you know, where can we go, where can we help in this journey with a lot of confidence. And I think it's something that has really got the whole country together behind it, uh, which is very exciting to see. Big challenge, but a lot of uh, exciting things happening. Kirsty. Thanks. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, so I asked my husband this morning, I said, what do you think I should say? And he said, um, well, tell them that you're a teenage road protester. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and yeah, I, did, I started out as an environmental activist um, and um, then went into government and have worked in the private sector and now I have an NGO and a consulting firm and Energy for Humanity I set, I set up about five years ago um, uh, to support all low carbon technologies. Our mission really is uh, very rapid and at scale decarbonization globally whilst also enabling universal energy access. So that means that not only do we have to replace our entire fossil fuel infrastructure globally within you know, mid-century timescales, but probably double or triple it as well to meet rising global energy demand. Um, big challenge. Um, and at the time, there weren't really any civil society-based NGOs advocating for nuclear energy, very few. And now there's a lot more. And I think that's actually a result of the fact that, first of all, the climate emergency is being you know, really taken more seriously. But the reality is, is that after 20 years of building public and political support for action on climate change, globally, we haven't made a dent in the upward trajectory of emissions. That's the reality. And so in light of that, environmentalists like me are starting to have to look again at taboo technologies like, like nuclear energy. And so new, new environmentalism is sort of defined, I think, by being, first of all, having a commitment to evidence-based decision-making, and secondly, looking again at technologies that previously the environmental movement would have, would have rejected. Um, and when we talk about evidence-based decision-making, there's a gap that's happening right now. One, uh, one perspective is you know, the perspective of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, where the vast majority of scenarios tell us that we need to massively scale up all low-carbon technologies, wind, solar, energy efficiency, carbon capture and storage, and nuclear energy. And what's happening in the real world is that all of the emphasis is being put on a very narrow set of solution options. Now, there's another gap, which I just want to mention, which is the gap in perception. So recently, I gave a talk at a, um, an event with a lot of very switched-on, very smart uh, Oxford and Cambridge PhD candidates who care about climate change. And I said to them, you know, there are countries in the world that have achieved success. So we would broadly define success on action on climate change as, first of all, cleaning up electricity generation, electrifying everything as efficiently as possible, and where we can't electrify, decarbonizing heat, transport, those other more harder-to-reach sectors, which is where we're moving today. 
And there are countries in the world that have done that. Can, you, can some of you name those countries? Anybody tell me what success looks like today? Fully clean, decarbonized electricity generation in modern industrialized economies, fully transitioned from fossil fuels. What did someone say? Sweden, someone said? Norway. Norway. So there's Lots of Sweden, fun. Iceland. I do still hunt whales. <laughs> <laughs> do still hunt whales. <laughs> so there's, there's about six modern industrialized economies that have fully transitioned from fossil fuels. And then Norway is very fortunate with all of its hydro, of course, Iceland with geothermal. And the others, Brazil, Sweden, Switzerland, and France, have decarbonized through a combination of nuclear and renewable energy. There isn't a single country in the world that has fully transitioned modern industrialized economy that has fully transitioned only with variable renewables. In fact, we see the opposite happening in Germany, where mm. they're phasing out their firm base load clean power in favor of coal. And actually, the most recent example of that energy transition is Ontario, where they've completely phased out coal, and they've done it through a combination of nuclear renewables. And guess what? That's what we're doing here in the UK. Very successfully, we've, we've reduced uh, our overall reduction in emissions over a five-year period is the greatest of any other European country, thanks to a combination of nuclear renewables. But that's not well understood. And so here I am banging the drum about nuclear technology. Thank you. And finally, comedy boo hiss. The man who glued himself to a lift on the way up here. Adam. I, I did have to promise uh, that I wouldn't glue myself to anything. Before yeah, try not to. In the building. <laughs> and um, it, well, it actually brings me back home because I was uh, a part of the rebellion in April and the site that I was attached to was Parliament Square. So my bike is currently uh, attached to a uh, somewhere, uh, but it's legal, and in the same place as where I used to attach it in April. Um, so I'm actually here, uh, the kind of, my headline is obviously as Extinction Rebellion spokesperson, but I've actually known Summit and Jeff for uh, about seven years, and uh, so I've got a, a history in sustainability. Actually, going back to my teenage years, I remember proudly voting for the Green Party at its high watermark of uh, voting in the 1989 general election, got 15% of the, uh, the vote. And that's a point when Maggie was green as well, um, which many people forget. Fast forward, actually, 13 years ago, when we reached another high watermark of sustainability, that's when I got fully into sustainability and I, my real interest was in behavioral change and how w working with large organizations to do things through kind of employee engagement, other types of behavioral change. And so um, I worked on that. Now, the thing that I experienced was that actually not enough changed um, due to that. So my um, interest started looking more broadly and then about three or four years ago I started writing a lot more and I've actually now I am a kind of a regular contributor to the economist group and write uh, for their future present platform about future energy solutions so I'm, I kind of know a lot what's going on um, but bringing it back to Extinction Rebellion is why did I choose to be there on site in April, in November as well, uh, in October as well, and I, for transparency, I haven't put myself forward for arrest, but I am risking arrest by being uh, on those sites. Um, and so why did I, I do that? Well, it's because um, doing a bit has been what we've been doing. It's been the narrative of 
the last decade or more, that if we do our bit, it'll be all okay. And we're not. It's definitely not okay. Um, and the interesting thing is, is that in the kind of pre-conversation with Summit, we're talking, you know, uh, capitalism comes up. I was actually interviewed about, about this. And um, what I'm interested in is just the results. So if actually we get good capitalists doing um, great things in the energy industry to not just do their bit, but actually really drive this and adopt all those technologies that you've been highlighting there, then we've actually got a chance. But if you look at the science, the evidence base, we are on a handcart to hell if we continue just to do our bit. So we must do more. And that's why I personally volunteer full-time for Extinction Rebellion, even though I could get nice, nice clients like some of you guys in this room. Um, and um, because, for me, it's the only logical choice I can personally put my time into if I want our society to be doing more than its bit, because we need to do a lot. Okay. So the way we're going to do, we're going to have a ch chat now, and then we'll be opening up the floor to questions. So... Um, what do you think of Extinction Rebellion? <laughs> Me? Yeah. yeah. I think they've done a fantastic job recently, actually. I'm not sure. I, I agree with all the time. Have your, have your kids uh, got involved? Friends? No. Relatives? No. 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 Um, but it doesn't mean that they've all heard of them, which is a great, yeah. great start, I think. Um, because I, I think, you know, Adam and I agree with 85% of the things almost. I mean, we're just not going fast enough. We are not going fast enough. And um, businesses are tactically doing the right things. Some of the oil and gas industry companies today doing some of the right things, but they're not doing enough. They're not doing it fast enough. And we still keep thinking in straight lines. And, yeah. and certainly all, all of my rhetoric, I saw it in National Grid. You know, we, we had a revolution in energy supply and it was chaos. And the minute you mention the word chaos, everyone gets really upset. Oh, we don't do chaos. So we, yeah, we did do chaos, actually. We just threw a load of effort at it, or a load of money at it, and said, get on with it. Mm. And it was hugely successful. And yet, as a society, as a country, as a, as, as a system of regulation and politics, we like plans and you know, master plans. And we keep talking about transition. Transition is, is a bullshit word. Mm. That means nicely well worked out and documented detailed activities. We are not going to solve this problem if we think about it that way. So we need a sense of, of chaos, revolution, rebellion, if we're really going to make a difference. So that's why I think Extinction Rebellion have, have, have got people just to begin to realise that we can't keep thinking about things in the old way, yeah. nice, neat, tidy, straight lines. It just won't cut it. Um, my problem with Extinction Rebellion is they are so emotive. Right? You're vaguely here because you're sane, Adam. I'll say vaguely. <laughs> but, the, but that's the truth, isn't it? You go and we've had, my reporters have been out all through the year in talking to you, and it's like, they're all evil! <laughs> I want to decarbonise tomorrow! <coughs> How? I don't know, but just do it. Yeah? And when I was in Barcelona, your boss, the boss of Schneider, said, let's do a little bit, 2%, 2%, and then it was up. He doesn't want 2%, he wants to give 40%. Sure. How'd you reply to that? We'd love, this, do, this, we'd love to do. We'd love to do 40%. Yeah, uh, it, it, I, I'll go for a quote from uh, an old countryman of mine, George yeah. Bernard Shaw, which I <laughs> okay. like very much. And he said, "All all human progress depends on unreasonable people." <laughs> and uh, I, it's just totally true because you know, said so the reasonable person looks at something yes. and adapts themselves to it, whereas the unreasonable person forces the world to adapt themselves to it. Yes. And I think what you 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 have to have people who are emotional about a topic if you're really going to change it. Um, now, we're a commercial organization, you know, 
there's a role for emotion and, and there's a role for prudence. But I, I think overall what you're seeing is, is, is this positive will for change. There are many, many ways to do it, but without that push of emotion, uh, nothing gets changed. It is an incremental change. And I would fully agree. I mean, how do you get a step change into this topic? Um, <clears throat> it's not a technology issue anymore. It's a behavioral topic, it's a regulation topic, it's an incentive topic. And again, I think what, what Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg and all the rest are doing is, is just showing how much people care about that topic, how important that topic is, uh, and, and putting that emotion into the topic and, and helping to really change the world and get companies like ours align behind that and investing in well, the Are right you going way. to listen to a bunch of crusties? gluing themselves to things and... It's a rhetorical question. I'm sitting here today. <laughs> I'm sitting here today as the only yeah. corporation uh, on this panel yeah. and saying, yes, we are in the middle of this story as well and we yeah. have our role to play. What do you think? Because they don't like you out there because you say the, the dirty N-word, nuclear. <laughs> His friends can't stand that. They want to build a couple of trees that will flap in the wind. Oh, one of the things that I like about Extinction Rebellion is that they're not predetermining what the solutions are going to be. They're calling for action. And by doing that and raising the alarm so effectively and drawing, you know, creating a voice for, for all of these people to take to the streets, um, it's what, you, what they're really doing, I think, is creating a mandate. Right. Creating a mandate for action. Which Even if that mandate doesn't involve nuclear, because we've seen them with signs saying, get rid of Hinkley, you know, nuclear is evil. Well, you know, Adam can speak to this better than I can, but yeah. my, my understanding is that, that there are three asks from Extinction Rebellion, which, which are to, for governments to take action, yeah. to create a citizen's jury, to determine what the pathway should be for, for our country to address this issue. So that seems quite open to me to, to being technology inclusive, technology neutral, potentially, depending on the views of the people. Citizens' juries, I think, are, are a very... For those of you who don't know, that's essentially where you bring a representative group of the population together and you, you invest time and resources in enabling them to, to gain a deep understanding of any particular issue in order to come to some conclusions and make recommendations for decision making. And it might be about anything from abortion to whether or not to have a nuclear program. And generally speaking, citizens' juries tend to arrive at very similar <coughs> conclusions as the best experts in the field. But what you gain is a democratic mandate for that recommendation. So, you know, I'm, I feel really confident that actually were there to be a citizen's jury around our pathways in the UK, it would be very likely to include some element of nuclear energy. Um, and then the third thing which Extinction Rebellion I've, I've heard called, called for is, is um, very deep decarbonisation within much more rapid timescales than yeah. are recommended by the IPCC. And I would honestly say that the, the, the best way to maintain you know, credibility um, and that mandate that I mentioned at the beginning is to align as closely as possible with the best available science. But I understand why you're raising the alarm and calling for accelerated, more urgent action, because frankly, we're, we're, you know, if every country were to meet the commitments that are made in the Paris Agreement today, we would still be on track for four degrees of warning, of, of warming. And by the way, no country is on track to achieve those goals. They're all being very nice to you, Adam. <laughs> Who likes Extinction Rebellion, what they've done? Hands up. Who thinks they're an absolutely annoying bunch of gits that stopped us getting around London? <laughs> oh, look, only one person. Oh, come on. Um, they're very nice. 
They will believe you. I'm going to be the voice of cynicism and say what people really want to say, but they won't. So, my criticism is, you're a bunch of privileged middle-class ponces who do this in their breaks and then they go off and buy their chateaus of wine. Very, very ill-informed when it comes to things. And how the hell are you expecting 27 million or however million you engage in to come to a jury and decide what our energy future is? So, <laughs> take that. Take the middle-class one first. Um, oh, and I'll throw in it's all white as well. I'll just give you that one as well. And male? We'll and male. Yeah, well, there's Why a few not? women that's there. Not true. Love it. <laughs> they're, um, all too, they're all too nice to say this, Adam, so that's the thing. So like a good politician, uh, I won't answer <laughs> his questions right away. Um, the, the first point that I think um, is very interesting for me is actually that most people, including a lot of rebels, um, still think that Extinction Rebellion is like a classic protest. Yeah. So it's like basically Franz and Earth on speed. Um, Literally. <laughs> um, it's not. Its aim is a true, we need a true revolution in the way that we run our society. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to have like uh, the, the government come down. It might happen if uh, the government plays its cards wrong. Um, but, not, but the point is, is that our job is not to be reasonable. Um, our job is to get change. Um, and so, and we actually have debates internally where I've actually used that. There was one time when I really wanted to get into a meeting and people saying, you can't come along to this meeting happen. And I was like, our job is not to be reasonable. I know I need to be in that meeting. And it was a good meeting for me to be in because it, it was about a rather tasty action which would have been inappropriate. So one of the things is I'm not a fan of all the actions mm. that Extinction Rebellion gets attached to. Uh, for transparency. But the thing is, is that, you know, you can't control everybody all the time, just like um, some, of, some of the CEOs of some of our great corporations might, aren't sometimes in control. Now, one of the things, just to go back to the, the middle class yeah. uh, point, though, which is a really interesting question, yeah. is actually um, many times the reason why things happen is because either people ha are in such pain or they have the opportunity to be able to do it. Now, our society, in, certainly in Britain, very few people, in fact, basically nobody is in pain yeah. due to ecosystem collapse. In other countries, there are people in pain due to ecosystem collapse, but not in our country. So that means that working class people, which generally are the sort of people that would rise up when there is significant economic pain, they're not in that pain. So the thing is, is then what we've got is it's the people who've got the opportunity to do it. And basically, it's middle-class people. They might not have their chateaus, but they certainly have an ability to mm -hmm. take time off and think in a, a kind of a bigger picture. Um, like, and I'm, um, I don't come from a fully middle-class background, but certainly I've kind of become middle-class, going to yeah. university, being a consultant. I'm a strategic storyteller now, so that tells you. Yeah, that tells you all. Um, and so the key thing is, is it's, I, I have the opportunity. I still keep a few clients, yeah. which means effectively I do that as like kind of a hobby almost, which then pays for me to be able to, to volunteer. So you're taking money from these evil earth rapers, are you? Absolutely. Eon sponsors <laughs> the website that I currently uh, write occasionally uh, for. No, I'm being facetious, but how do you counteract that with some of your colleagues who'd be like, 
Oh, that's outrageous that you're taking money from energy companies. Well, the interesting thing is, is that because for me, what I'm trying to do is work with uh, that energy company only on a specific platform, which is about effectively pushing it. And actually, I am kind of sneaking things in because the last article that I wrote, I was talking about climate emergency. I included Greta Thunberg. And I actually effectively, and I, I kind of hid it in the last paragraph, <laughs> but there was quite a clear criticism of the government in the last paragraph of it. What, that got published on an Eon site? Yeah. Blimey. Anyone from Eon here? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, strictly speaking, it's not an Eon site. It's an Economist site. OK, right. Um, but, and it's a subtle criticism, but it's effectively there because it's actually the criticism from the Committee of Climate Change. So I just basically rewrote what the Committee for Climate Change had written, that the government is not on track mm. to even achieve its aims, which are still probably not enough, as you were suggesting. Um, so I think it's, um, it's up to the people that have got the passion for it. And there are some working class people. There are um, people of not non kind of white Caucasian background in the movement, as, as we know. But it is more white, it is more middle class. And it, but for me, um, I think the thing that came up for me is that quite often people um, come up to me and actually are quite warm to me and thank me for um, being in Extinction Rebellion and doing what I'm doing. And I say, great, th I really appreciate the thanks, but I don't want you to thank me. I want you to join me if this means that much to you. Okay. Uh, let's pick up a couple of points before we open up to the, uh, the floor for questions. Um, you left the grid how long ago? Three years. Three years ago. So did you take any responsibility for the massive power cuts that we've had recently? No. Oh, that's good. Yeah. No. What did you think of them? I mean, the, the, Im the image that you have, the narrative was that we've gone too far, we've closed down all our thermal plants, we've left ourselves a shortfall, and when one station went, which was, I think it was lightning, I think there was... <coughs> Ladies and gents, if you're standing at the back, come and get seats at the front, please, because we need to get... Come on, come on down, don't be shy. There's no rebellions here. Come on down, sit down. Um, what did you think about that? Because we could sit back and go, is this, as some people said because we went too far down our removing thermal plant and capacity has left us in a very vulnerable state, leading to the power cuts that we saw. No, I think um, well, it's, a, it's a complex issue, isn't it? But a, yes. a, few, a few points. Um, what we clearly haven't done is adjusted some of the rules of the system to keep pace with the changes <coughs> of the system. Right. So the system's designed for over a gigawatt of single point failure, and there was more than that, actually. Yes. So you'd expect it to have the problem that it had. Um, but should we have adjusted it because the makeup has done? Yes, we should have. And we means the regulator, national grid, the industry, yeah. government, etc., etc. So it's a bit of a, oh, let's go and fix it after the horse has bolted, a bit of a problem. The second thing is there, was a, there are lots of other systems that clearly didn't work either, in a sense. And that's always been a worry of mine in the industry. Be because our system in the UK is so bloody reliable, yes. we don't test them with the emergency yeah. systems at all <coughs> until there is real adversity. And some of, the, some of the voltage actual control systems didn't work. The train stopped, nothing to do with the power supply. No, Once yeah. the power went off, yeah. the train couldn't actually restart itself. So there are lots of other issues that I think people will now attack. Um, also, it actually reminds me, not in the power system, but in the gas system a few years ago, where there were some gas outages, and lots of big industrial gas consumers had chosen to take a lower tariff mm. so that they weren't on guaranteed supply. 
the procurer of the energy had never told the rest of the system they'd done that. And for 10 years, of course, they'd never been interrupted, actually. And there was an interrupter, and everyone, oh my God, what's this one about? We've been interrupted, yeah. You've been paying for a, an interruptible service, actually. You've just never been interrupted before. Mm. This is a little bit like that to an extent. There's other things going on here that are commercial arrangements that need sorting out. So in some so ways, I hate to say it's a bad thing. Issue. I think it, no, it's not a fundamental capacity thing. Not at all, no. But it's, it's a reminder that we have to update the rules and regulations of our system far more quickly as yeah. the system is changing. Okay. Kirsty, um, the word Hinkley uh, has become a, a byword for wasting money. <laughs> what do you think of what's been happening to the whole issue, particularly with Flamanville, which I went to see in 2011, wow. which was supposed to be built, and you know what's been happening there. Yeah. The, the, the capacity for modular nuclear has certainly been expressed in other countries, particularly China. Mm. But we seem to be, you know, you saw the film there about fusion, you know, the idea of sort of small-scale fusion. W how do you see the state of nuclear power mm. right now? And particularly in this climate, yeah. whatever Adam says, there is quite a lot of people who are quite unreasonable ab about it. <laughs> There's, yeah, um, there's, there's in, it's interesting, actually, because there's a gap again here between the reality and the perception. Yeah. And um, the perception, you know, if you look out the window in this country and you, and you look at Hinkley, basically nuclear looks really expensive and slow. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, quite legitimately question whether or not we can actually really rely on nuclear energy to make a meaningful contribution towards solving climate change when you, when you look at that example or other examples in Europe and in the United States. Um, that are that are late and slow and expensive. But um, we just did a study recently called the Nuclear Cost Driver Study for the Energy Technologies in uh, Institute, of which government is a member. And um, we were asked to investigate what drives the cost of nuclear. So, because what we know is that there are nuclear plants being delivered today for half or even a third of the cost that we're seeing projects being delivered for in Europe and the United States. So what's the difference? How, is the, how are those plants being delivered so much faster and so much more cost effectively? Is it because labor is cheap in China or mm. corners have been cut on safety? And what we found was that actually the countries that are currently delivering successful low cost programs are doing that because they have been doing it for a long time. So they've got really good at it. And actually the vast majority of cost differences in the indirect costs, which is around the interaction with the regulator, it's to do with starting building before you've got a completed design, it's never having done it before. So all of the projects that we see today in Europe and in the United States are first of a kind, uh, first in a generation, first in country, mm. and guess what? First of a kind infrastructure projects tend to be really complicated and expensive and slow. So counterintuitively, the best, most sensible thing that we could do next is immediately build another one. Because but there's no appetite for it, is there? Well, that's the problem, because we're, we're informing our whole position yeah. on the experience mm. of a single first-of-a-kind plant, <coughs> instead of actually really understanding <coughs> that when you build a program, then you very rapidly get down the cost curve. And I just would like to ask, imagine if we invested the same commitment and determination to increase deployment and cost reduction for nuclear as we have done for other low-carbon technologies. Think how much progress then we could make. Yeah. Now, that needs to come from the industry too. And believe me, I'm, you know, no one's more critical of the, of the ambition that we see in the industry today than me. But what we do see are, you know, for the first time in the nuclear sector, a startup culture emerging. Mm -hmm. So we have more than 50 
startup companies in the United States that are developing productizing um, innovative technologies that were, you know, looked at in labs and demonstrated in labs and that don't need water for cooling and, you know, are very small. They could replace diesel generators, micro reactors or small modular reactors, which are much more investable. Yep. You don't have to bet the farm in order to build a gigantic. Uh, yeah, the huge infrastructure costs. Yeah. Um, and of course, what they're doing is, is applying advanced manufacturing techniques, moving into more of a product based approach instead of the project based approach that we see today. So you must be frustrated then that if we've gone through, and it's true, the prototype is always the hardest one. Yeah. And for us, culturally, this has been the biggest thing for 40 years. But there's, there's no government going to back nuclear now. Well, the United States government is. Oh, here. Um, well, we're still seeing, you know, we're still seeing nuclear but, because being they can't, included because in the Adam's zero. friends and the public in general will be against it. Mm -hmm. They'll say, go green, let's go for yeah. wind turbines, let's go for that. So, Well, here's the thing, right? Yeah. So when we had an 80% reduction target, 80% of the people thought that they were in the 20%. Yeah. Now we've got a 100% decarbonisation target, and all of a sudden, the modelling looks very different. All of a sudden, the scale of our challenge to decarbonise not only the power sector, for which we need to build, I think the CCC concluded 150 gigawatts yeah. of new electricity generating capacity in 30 years. <laughs> and that's before we start talking about decarbonising heat and transport and industry. So for that, we're going to need all the tools at our disposal, realistically. We really should be thinking about this in terms of the whole system. What's the, cost, what's the fastest, most cost-effective, most feasible pathways to get us to the end result? Not setting targets against my pet technology versus yeah. your pet technology. Yeah. Well, That's well. entirely the one way around. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, we'll be opening up to, to the floor in a second. Uh, Mike, massive company, Schneider Electric, with fingers in loads of pies, oil and gas, renewables, nuclear, the whole sort of thing. What's the compunction on a company like you? Are you trying to do this? As I saw in Barcelona, we, we met your CEO and he took on the challenge and he said, we're going to do all of this sort of stuff. Um, what's the pressure for the people in this room that comes from the political side? And how does that change what you're going to offer them in terms of products? Are you thinking, actually, we better do this, otherwise we're going to get a kicking from the regulators? Or are you saying, actually, we should be creating new technologies because we see a market. And frankly, that's the end game for any business. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's more the second one. It's around, as a commercial organization, clearly you're looking at where the opportunities are. Yeah. But um, as a company, we've always had a very, very strong focus around sustainability. It's something we've been doing for many, many years. And in our core, yes, we are around energy management, providing technologies for energy management. Um, but it's not just about the technologies. It's how do you bring those technologies to the market and enable people to be more efficient with them. So, you know, we've been, in, if you go back into the manufacturing industry, and we've been in that for 50 years, mm -hmm. um, industrial manufacturing is all around how do you reduce your cost base? How do you, and energy has always been a major cost in the uh, industrial manufacturing space. So a lot of industries long before, let's say, it became a, a topical thing, were working on their processes. How do, I, how do I reduce my energy consumption? Now, they may not have been doing it from an, an environmental point of view. They were doing it from a cost point of view. But that already existed. Okay? So we were just picking up on that 
and basically then starting to, to look at that whole sustainability topic and realizing that actually the technologies we were providing were in the piece of the market where around 70% of the energy is consumed. Right. Okay, so I wouldn't say it was like, you know, there was a master plan. It was more saying, well, these are all the things we do. We make things for smart buildings. We make things for smart grids. We make things for smart data centers. Oh, by the way, that's actually around, you know, when you add them all up infrastructure, it's around 70% of the world's energy has been consumed in the sectors we work in. And then you start to look at that further and you say, well, actually, you know, these technologies can enable people to see the energy they're using and start to realize, as I realize myself when I start measuring my own offices here, that you know I have one office that's using 70 kilowatt hours per meter squared, and I have another one that's that's using almost 400. And then you start saying, well, why is this? You know, so you 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 start to then get visibility and allows you to see where you're using your energy and how you can start to make proper decisions around that. Are you an energy agnostic company? In Will you still play? You'll make widgets, let's call it widgets. You'll make yeah. a widget for a wind farm, but you'll continue to make a widget for a nuclear power plant. And yeah, I mean, and we, we are all around the technology of once it has been generated, once the electricity yeah. has been generated, how do you get it through to the socket on your wall in the most efficient way? And how do you then allow the user of that energy to be able to visualize how they're using that energy in manufacturing, in buildings, in data centers, in infrastructure, so but that they can then where make that's decisions. generated from, if you get start to get shareholder pressure or public pressure saying, don't deal with a nuclear plant, don't deal with generation from well, well first we don't have that choice as a company. No. I mean, we we yeah. are in the system. As a company ourselves, we try to buy more and more from renewables. Ninety-six percent of what I consume in the UK is actually from renewable energies. Uh, so, like all companies in that space, you can strike your own deals on where you buy your energy, but we don't influence where the rest of the market are. Our, our point is, okay, look, how can you use less energy mm -hmm. and still have the same productivity and still have the same quality of life? Okay. Very briefly, uh, a quick sentence on climate change doing our bit. Are we doing our bit in the energy sector? I'll start with the rebel first. Thank Very you. quickly. Don't yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I think the thing is, is that... Um, our job as Extinction Rebellion is to be the politest shock troops um, that they have. So, our, Because basically what we're doing is we're giving society a choice. It's either we have, there's two forms of collapse. We can have the climate and ecological collapse, or we could have a societal collapse. And actually, if we have the climate and ecological collapse, we will have a societal collapse. Or we use our creativity, our passion, and our desire to work out how we have something very different to what we've got at the moment. Are you going to tell your friends to be nice about energy? On a personal basis, yes. Okay, good enough. <laughs> Kirsty, energy sector doing its bit? So, um, the late, great Professor Sir David Mackay said, um, yeah. the climate problem is mostly an energy problem. Yeah. And so, you know, really it is up to you guys um, to, 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 make this, to make this change. And, all I would say is that, you know, again, be as evidence-based and rigorous as you can be. Um, and, you know, for example, that means not having a sort of, you know, an emotional reaction. And humans, you know, we're terrible at making risk assessments. We're terrible at being incredibly tribal in our approaches. And, you know, if we're going to really get out of this, this mess that we're in, we're going to need to to try to counter some of those tendencies and be, and be much more objective and evidence-based. Mike. 
Um, I'm on the positive side of this one. Um, if I look back over the last 30 years, uh, if you were saying 30 years ago the UK would be at 40% renewables yeah. and heading for 70, renewable energy would be cheaper than uh, fossil fuel energy. Uh, I think I think there's a huge momentum behind this. I think what's what's happening in the general public is, is just accelerating that. Uh, of course, there's lots more to do, and that's why we're, we're we're calling out and saying it's not a technology issue. It's a it's an incentive and regulation issue which can drive the behavior behavior change but honestly I mean I, I know there's a, there's a lot to do but um, I'm extremely positive about where we are already compared to where we were 15 years ago because you can see the momentum just driving behind that and finally Steve uh, well the billions of people in, in this world whose lives are, are better today um, it's thanks to energy, yeah. thanks to access to energy in reality. The fact they've got good diets, they have yeah. jobs and everything else, and their, and their life expectancy is 20, 30 years more than it was only 20, 30 years ago. So energy is going to be the solution to this problem as well. I think the only thing I would say is the whole industry has to, has to all work, all there, and has to up the pace. 2050 is, is my worry. It's such a long way. I'm not for 2025, because that's ridiculously <laughs> short, but I think we need to set some in-between targets. And I think the companies need to do it. That they need to lead with a real sense of urgency, not be pushed, really be seen to be out there leading this in a very big way. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, please thank our panel.